Thank you, Delcy. Well, Rob, that was quite a <laughs> service, wasn't it? To see Lily baptized. I know that uh, many have prayed for Lily. And uh, you and Nancy and Steve, just this was a moment of God breaking through. So we rejoice with you on that. Um, I, 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 as I study the Bible, I'm all, always amazed at how relevant a book written 2,000 years plus ago is. And uh, some people who read it go, well, it's an old book. It's not really relevant. Well, I guess, but today we're going to talk about money and sex, which, of course, doesn't have any relevance to our day and age. And so uh, somehow uh, in our preparation, we thought we would do chapter 6 of Corinthians. So I'm working my way through a book written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And this chapter should have been broken down into two sermons. But our planning didn't do it that way. We didn't see all that was in this. So I'm going to have to just jump and, and run through this in some ways. I'm going to skip some things. And if you have questions, just email me, and I'd be happy to talk over with you on uh, anything you have. 1 Corinthians 6, let's talk first about money. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Stop. If you, you, to understand what Paul's talking about, you have to understand what a dispute is. A dispute is a disagreement over finances. That's what he's talking about. He is not talking about a crime that is against the law. He's talking about two business people have argued over a contract or over a boundary, over something, and they, they go to court to try to figure this out. But there's more under this than meets the eye. And we'll pick that up as we go through. And Paul's first, he's, he's upset that they would take a dispute that they have with a brother or a sister and take it to a, a secular court for judgment. He says, don't you know, uh, uh, instead of God's people, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Full stop. Did you not know that? Did you not know that there is coming a time when Christ's kingdom will come, that all those who have chosen to follow him will be part of his government, part of his ruling family over the whole world, and that all of us will have a place somewhere in that, according to how we live here. And so Paul says, if you're judging the world, don't you think that people, wise, godly people in the church are competent to handle your case. Now, what we don't know behind this is that the courts of Rome were unabashedly uh, impartial toward the rich. And so you would have rich people. This is why James says in chapter two, it's the rich that drag you into court because they would use legal means to take from the poor or those without power, land or money that they wanted. And everybody knew this about the Roman courts. Even the Roman courts knew it. It's just the way it was. And so Paul's like, your brother, you're taking your brother 
to court? And you don't think there's anybody in the church. Now, what makes a person able to be a good judge? Well, they're able to apply the law in a just and impartial way. That makes them a good judge. Well, the Roman courts didn't use the law of Christ. In fact, they used the law of rich and might. If you're rich and you have power, you'll get what you want in the courts. But in the church, the church judges situations and circumstances according to the law of Christ, which is you love another as I have loved you. So if you truly were concerned about your brother and this disagreement, you would not go to a court where you know you're going to win. You would go where Christ's word and will will be found out. Ah, so then why would you take it to a secular court? Well, there's only one reason. So I could take advantage of the poor brother or sister. Don't you know that the law of Christ and love and justice will be found in the church, not in the secular court? By the way, I would say, you have to understand this about Canadian we do not have a justice system. We have a legal system. There's a big difference. The legal system ensures that all the T's are crossed, that everybody has gone through process. Whether or not you get justice, but you will have a process. That told to me by the owner of a large law firm in Vancouver. Ed, we don't have a justice system. We have a legal system. And hopefully justice will come out of it, but not guaranteed. But with Christ, justice and truth and love are the system. So why wouldn't you bring it, your disagreement, to the church? Then he says something else. Not only don't you know we're going to judge the world as a church, don't you know that we will judge angels? Okay. <laughs> When's the last time you heard a sermon on this one? Uh, if, you, uh, pay, if you go into the scriptures in the Old Testament, there's a term called sons of God that is used all, six times. Five of them refer to angels. Sons of God were those who reigned with God over both the heavens and earth. In the New Testament, who does sons of God refer to? The children of God. And this is what we are told in a couple of verses. I only have, I don't have a lot of time. I'm just kind of going on a caveat here. Um, somebody made fun of that, but a caveat's good because you can kind of touch on something and move away. Look at, um, look at Jude 6. You should see these verses up on the screen. And the angels and angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, a reference to, first, uh, to Genesis chapter 6. These God has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on that great day. So we know there is a judgment of some angels anyway that's going to take place. 
Revelation 3.21. To the one, he's Jesus is speaking to the church, to the believer who is victorious. If you want to know what victory over what, you'll have to read those few verses before. But I want to emphasize this part. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Like if you go through the book of Revelation, just try this out, and you watch the scenes of the throne room, you will see a, rep a, a repetitive term that is pulled out of Daniel referring to the throne of God, and it will say the thrones, plural. Well, how many thrones does God need to sit on? Clearly. There is God who is the ruler of all, but he, in his system of oversight of this world, will have other thrones around him. And we are told that the church, the sons and daughters of God, will sit on the thrones, meaning we will be part of the ruling. We may not have a throne in the throne room of heaven, but we're part of the ruling system. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, here's the condition, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. And so Paul is uh, referring to this teaching that he definitely understood, maybe we don't, but that we are going to judge in the world to come, we are going to be given positions of authority. And if, if we can judge angels, why couldn't we handle a case like this? Do you think your case is so important that even the church who's going to be elevated, who lives by the law of Christ, you don't think they can handle it? Therefore, if you have any disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? What's he talking about? That injustice and might for right and privilege are not part of the reigning of Christ. We scorn those values and practices and rather turn to the practices of the love of Christ that, that I am, as Jesus sacrificed himself for me, so I am to sacrifice myself for you. As Jesus fulfilled justice, so we are to fulfill justice. As Jesus lived for truth and died for truth, so we are to live for truth. What is true? No one else but the church has the resources of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to be able to live that out. Now, whether we live it out or not, well, that's the part of the issue, isn't it? But instead, one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers. Paul's just like, oh, I, I don't understand why you do not understand who you are. And behind this, 
because you're going to see it here. The very fact that, verse 7, that lawsuits among you means you have already completely defeated already. Well, what's he mean? Well, it means you're not living by the law and the love of Christ. You're living for self. Yeah, but what if the person ripped me off? Good point. And so he's, he's, he's not saying you shouldn't deal with those types of issues. He's saying deal with them in the church. In fact, he says, the f- why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and do this to your brothers and sisters. So there's the hint. You're cheating. He's talking to people who are taking others to court because they want to take advantage of them in legally to do it. But even if it was just a disagreement between two people, two Christians who really do see things differently, would you not submit to the guidance and the oversight and the judgment of the godly within a church? You know, in all my times of Christian ministry, I've only ever heard of this one time. Now, (laughs) maybe Rob is just that Christians aren't ripping one another off or having disagreements. Maybe that's the truth. I don't know. Maybe that's it. But I kind of don't think that's probably the reality. I think the reality is I don't go to the church because I don't see the church like Jesus sees the church. So I go to a court because I want to get my way or I want to get uh, justice because I am being ripped off. And all my time as a pastor, I've only ever heard one person taking it to the church It was a disagreement where a contractor had done work for the uh, another brother, and the brother said, "No, this isn't any good." And he said, "I did all the work you asked. I'm not paying you." And so they went to. He asked it to go to the church. The church judged, took a look at the situation, and thought it through and said, "No, you need to pay him." The guy said, "I'm not paying anybody," and he left. And so the guy, instead of taking it to court, then said, I will live with that judgment before God because I would rather not bring shame to the name of Christ by bringing a hauling a brother into a secular court over a money dispute. And so he did that because money is not as God. Jesus is. So rather I suffer loss than the name of Jesus suffer loss because the name of Jesus is more important to me than my money. Wow. Takes a lot of faith. But if you see the church in reality in the light of Paul, where Paul is saying, (laughs) all this that we're living through here, this is just, it's temporary. You will rule with Christ. You will judge the angels. The position of the church is inconceivable to us today. And so Paul says, act like it. Live it out. In, 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 in contradiction to what the world may say about you or the world may think about the church, you live out your identity. The sons and daughters of the living God. Live like that. Give your heart to that, not to the values of this world. That's what he's saying. And when it comes to practical things like, hey, I got a problem, bring it to the church. Now, Paul says, and now, okay, so, time out. We're going into a tough passage. 
a tough passage because some of you are struggling with this or your children are struggling with some of these things. And there's a tough passage because there tends to be only two responses to these verses. But as we go into it, I just let's listen, especially if you're struggling with these things. Just listen for the voice of God. I'll try to do my best to direct you there. So Paul says, um, you're, instead you're cheating yourselves, or instead you yourselves rather, cheat and do wrong. Do you, and he, now the next verse he's going to say, here's the problem with you taking advantage of a brother or sister and stealing from them. Here's what this says about your faith. And then he goes into uh, this statement. Or don't you know that wrongdoers, like you who are cheating your brother or sister, will not inherit the kingdom of God? All right, these verses need to be thought through. Don't be deceived. In other words, don't, live, don't think you can live like you want. And there's no consequences to it. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's probably one sin that really stuck out to you because in our culture, it's a big deal. And there's generally two responses by the church to LGBTQT concerns. By the way, as I was coming here and I was thinking about this, I thought, why, why is the LGBTQT mindset so strong in our culture? It's because people who were different and struggled with something had no place to find those that would love them. Do you know a large percentage in the United States of people who come out as gay are from churches? They grew up in churches. Now, there's a, there's a theologian that says 80%. I don't think it's that high, but it's, it's inconceivable to me in the gay community that 80% came from churches. But even if that's just half true, 40%? Because they couldn't find love in a church. So they had to go where they could find and then work out what they were going through. So either there's, there's one of two responses that we as a church will give. We, some churches are affirming, it's all okay. Whatever sexual practice you're into, whatever uh, orientation you have, don't worry about it, you're accepted here. Or, among us more conservative churches, it's wrong, you're wrong, get right or get out. There tend to be the two responses. Neither one of those is this verse. Neither one. And I want to show you that. Paul says, when you live like this, and he names, by the way, it's not just uh, sexual sins he names. He names a whole bunch. What Paul is picking up on from the Old Testament is the idea of intentional and unintentional sin. 
There were different sacrifices for intentional sin versus unintentional sin. Intentional sin is, I'm going to do this. I don't care what Jesus or anybody else says. I'm doing this. And I'm going to live this way because that's the way I want to live. Yeah, I put my faith in Jesus, but this is how I'm going to live. Unintentional sin is, I want to please Christ, but oh, I fell again into this temptation. And I, I feel terrible about it. And I, I'm trying to be free, but then I get up and cycle, you know, brush myself off and get the, and then fall again. The difference between those two can be seen in second, uh, second Corinthians chapter seven. Godly sorrow brings repentance. There's, so when you are, when you sin and you feel sorrow over it and you turn to Christ and repent, I don't care what the sin is. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance is the sign of true faith and unintentional sin. But worldly sorrow brings death. Why? Because sin always leads to death. Death is the separation of me and God. And when I say, I'm doing this whether I want to, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God says. This is the way I'm going to live. Then it's clear you don't have a true faith in Christ. It's clear you have no faith in Christ. You, you, it's, you're like a husband who says to us, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then continues to have affairs. You don't really love Love her if you're continuing to have affairs. Because if you really loved your wife, you would stop that behavior. And so this is what Jesus is saying. And this is what Paul is saying. The difference between unintentional and intentional sin is the heart. When you're truly repentant, that's the sign. Not that you didn't sin, because by the way, Every one of us here still sins. Who among you can cast a stone at somebody else? See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness to want to do what is right. What eagerness to clear yourselves, to, to, to be free. What indignation, what a indignation at your behavior, at, at the hurt that's being caused. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice. To, that's what godly sorrow produces. A, a heart that leans toward God, not perfection. So why did I tell you this? Because you may be struggling with one of those sins and you're following Christ and, or you're trying to, but by the way, when, when I was a teenager, if you ever struggled with any of these sins, especially homosexuality, you would never tell anybody about it. Because get it right or get out would be your answer. The amount of information and lies and truth that come at a teenager and a person today through the internet, through movies, through media, through other people, through friends, is inconceivably great. And as they struggle through their sexual identification, different thoughts, different temptations, different feelings come up. 
And if you can't talk about them with somebody who is mature and godly, where are you going to go? That's why I think that this is wrong, get out, is not the answer. In fact, it can't be the answer because look at what Paul says in verse 11. And such, and that is what some of you were. Apparently, people who were committing these sins or who lived this way had come to Christ and found hope and found a relationship with Christ, struggled through their sin. And Paul is saying, that's what some of you were. You identified as that in your life. That's who you were. But once you found Christ, you said, I found a new identity in Christ. I'm a son or daughter of God. I have hope and I have forgiveness. And when you fell and struggled back with that sin, you found more mercy and grace as you sought him. That's how salvation works. If salvation work is get it right or get out, we might as well all just leave. Because I, I, I still struggle. And so why is that one sin worse than any other? Of all the places a person should be able to struggle with sin, it's here. <laughs> not openly, well, this is the way it is. I, I'm just who I am and I'm going to live that way. Well, then clearly you don't have faith in Christ. But if you're saying, hey, I want to live for Christ, but I keep falling. Well, then brother, sister, let's help you. That's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. God's power and love for you is greater than your sin. Now, here's some assumptions I had of this text. And I didn't realize how they shaped the text until I questioned them. Number one, it seems like once they came to Christ, all their sin was done. They didn't sin anymore. That's what it seems that you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified. It seems like, yeah, you, you know, once you came to Christ, it all ended. No more struggles, no more problems, no more sin. Well, the next verse tells us that assumption is not true. Because the next verse, Paul says, now, I want to talk to you about sexual immorality. And he's talking to the people who were washed and justified and sanctified. Apparently, the process of becoming like Christ is exactly that, a process. Now, if you come at these passages with a justice or a right or a truth mentality, you have no grace. It's like, if you struggle, that's your problem. You're not, you shouldn't be struggling. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is above your sin. Mm-hmm. But if you come at it with just a grace and mercy, oh, it's okay. Be yourself. Be true to yourself. But if you come at this passage, which unfortunately is the way Paul intended it, but we as a church tend to go to extremes. If you come at it with grace and truth, judgment and mercy, Paul says these things are wrong. But the mercy and grace of God will help you to begin to live a life honoring to him. That should be the position of us as a church. 
I don't care what sin you struggle with. If you have a godly sorrow and seek to walk with Christ, we can help you. If you have a heart that says, I'm just going to do what I want to do, we can't help you. And you'll probably feel awkward here. Too often, those of us that are teachers are truth people. That's our orientation. We're very focused on truth. Good thing, because we're <laughs> preaching the truth. But we forget the mercy and the grace side. Jesus doesn't, Paul doesn't, but Ed can. And this passage is saying to you, now, the one thing it's saying to you, be careful of intentional sin. You may sin yourself away from Christ. See, that's the danger. You could be struggling with it, but if you start to just go, oh, well, this is what I like and, you know, maybe it's okay. You're starting to move away from that sorrowful sin, sorrowful heart that leads to repentance. That's where the danger is. That's why the struggle is worth it because Jesus said, if you endure with me, you'll reign with me. If you endure, if you persevere, you'll be saved. All of those things we're telling you, if you truly are holding on to Christ, he'll get you through. You may struggle with your sin till the day you die. And that's okay with Jesus as long as your heart keeps pursuing him. Be careful of your heart turning. Okay. Well, that's about 25% of the way through. <laughs> this, this, this chapter actually goes together because he starts out talking with disputes and then uses sexual sin as, well, if you're living in sexual sin and you, you, you don't have any godly sorrow about that, then you need to be careful because you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, since we're talking about sex, here we go. I have the right to do anything. Now, he's quoting, now Paul is quoting what the Corinthians say about their sexual activity that he's going to put a finger on. I have the right to do anything, you say. I'm free in Christ, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. And then Paul says, I'll not be ma mastered by anything. And you say, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. So their argument, okay, so what's the issue that Paul's going to deal with? Um, uh, you know, going to a, like, are you shocked in a show or a movie when somebody goes to a bar and picks somebody else up for the night? Are you like, oh, people do that? That's just normalized in our culture. I'm not, a, I'm, not <laughs> I'm not supporting it. I'm just saying it's normalized in our culture. In the Corinthians culture, what was normalized was in some temples, their worship activity was to go and pay to have sex with a temple prostitute. And prost uh, women, young women were uh, raised up to be priestesses of those temples and then men would come in and pay and have sex with them. And that was just normal in Corinth. It was normalized. It had been going on for so long and was so common that people were like, yeah. So these people become Christians, and they're still doing it. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But they're still doing it. And so their reasoning is, I have the right to do anything. I, I'm free in Christ. 
I've been made free in Christ. I can do what I want, but not everything is beneficial to your faith, is what Paul means. If you continue on an activity that like, that is against the law of Christ, you're going to destroy your faith. That's what he means. It's not beneficial. It's not helping you grow in Christ. It's detracting from it. I have the right to do anything. I'm free in Christ. I've been set free. You preach that, Paul. But I'll not be mastered by anything. Paul is going to say in just a few verses down from this, you have one master, Jesus And anything that you put over him is sin and needs to be removed. He is your master. So you don't have the right to replace Jesus as your master with some sort of behavior or attitude. And then they would say, this is a saying, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, God destroying. But what's the body? Like, it's going to die. Like, it's going to the dust. It doesn't matter what I do in this body. It all ends. Whether it's eating food, who cares what food you eat? This body is all going to die, and and, and, and we don't need it for heaven. And so, same with sex. It's like food. Who cares what you do with the body? It's all dead. It doesn't matter. Paul says, the body, however, is not meant, was not designed, was not saved, was not redeemed so that you could have sexual immorality. It was actually designed for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you know that what Paul is referring to is that the temple of God is now our bodies? God dwells within us. (laughs) What you do with the temple of Jesus matters a lot. Why? Well, because by his power, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he is going to raise you from the dead. And this body that you have is the seed of the immortal body you will receive at the resurrection. You cannot divorce Your body from your spirit and your soul, they all interact. They all affect one another. They all belong to Jesus. And when you're resurrected, this body that you say is going to be destroyed is actually going to be resurrected. Quite the opposite of what you're saying says. Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ himself, that he dwells in you? Shall I take a member of Christ and unite it with a prostitute? See, here's where the problem was. Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? This is a a unique thing right out of the book of Genesis, that when a man and woman become one flesh, they become one. They are intricately involved with one another. And Jesus and Paul is saying, are you going to take that sacred relationship relationship and then take a pro, do, do it with a prostitute and then unite Christ in that? He's in you. He's with you wherever you go. Is, is, do you think that's okay? Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So that's the first thing he's saying. He's going like, <laughs> your arguments of freedom in Christ. By the way, uh, freedom in Christ does not mean I can do what I want. That's what freedom in our culture means, right? I have freedom. I can do whatever I want. That's not what scripture teaches freedom is. Scripture says we were in bondage to sin, meaning we could not help but sin. 
Now, we might not commit every sin, but we couldn't get out of not sinning. But in Christ, once he paid for our sins and broke the bonds of death and sin on us, now by his spirit, we are free to obey him. That's what freedom means. (laughs) Freedom doesn't mean I can do whatever I want because that makes you the master. You're not the master. Jesus is. And now I'm free to actually say no to sin by his power. I won't, I'm not going to do well on my own, but I have the indwelling spirit. I have the word of God. I have prayer. I have other believers praying for me. I have help from counselors I can go to that can direct me to truth. And now I can overcome sin. Whereas before I could never, not without Christ. I got a lot more I want to say there. I got two minutes. Hmm. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul says. Here's his, his kind of summary of the statement. Flee from a sexual immorality. Is it, <laughs> this is a, do you not picture Joseph here? Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Potiphar's wife got him alone and said, come lie with me. And she grabs, and grabs him by the coat. And he is so intent of getting out. He goes, how could I do this to God? And he flees and he's like, she still has his coat. It wasn't like, oh, okay, see you later. She's trying to pull him into bed and he's fighting so much so that she rips his coat off him and he takes off. There's the example. Flee it, fight it. Don't pursue it. Now, this is where this gets confusing. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that the bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So what's confusing here is in the Greek text, the term that is translated other isn't actually there. It's put there by the translators to help us understand what they think the interpretation is. I think it brings more confusion. So if you were reading this in the Greek, it would say all sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. I think Paul is quoting them again. He's summing up their argument. Hey, all sins are outside the body. Who cares what I do with the body? It's going to die. It's not, it doesn't matter what I do. It's done when I'm dead. It's only what's in the spirit. And Paul says, Whatever, whenever you sin sexually, because that's the sin he's dealing with, uh, uh, is you sin against your body, the body that's going to be resurrected. I think he's repeating the argument he just made. Don't you understand? So they, we may not believe that. that. That may not be common in our world today. That, oh, do whatever you want with your body because it really doesn't matter. It's going to die. And then you go on to God and he doesn't really pay any attention to what you did in your body. That's what they believe. And Paul's argument against that is you sin against your own body. And by the way, in your body, don't you know that this body that you're sinning against is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So summing up real quick. Number one, if you're struggling with sin, And some of these, when we go out door to door and we talk with people and say, can we share the Bible with you, how God draws near from the Bible in two minutes? We draw a picture of a broken world and we say, and people 
And people, when we live in brokenness, if we're not open to God, then we try to find ways to find happiness and meaning and fulfillment. And how do people do that? Certainly sex and money are two of the top, right? I get, if I get enough money, I'll truly be happy. If I, if I have enough pleasure, I'll, that'll truly fulfill me. And if you're sitting here or listening online, there's a chance that you have found that that is enjoyable for a time, but then it brings a whole new level of emptiness and loneliness and meaningless to your life. It snaps you back into your brokenness. And I would say, if you're struggling with your sin, this is the perfect place to be because Jesus has died for you to pay for your sin and promises that if you are willing to put your faith in him, he will enter within you by his field, give you his spirit, and will begin to change you from the inside out. That's what God promises. If you're willing to choose to put your faith in him. So, my response to you is, struggling with sin? You're welcome here. Jesus, turn to him. Read his word, turn to him. He is the one only one that can overcome sin. The second thing is, oh, I am a believer, but I'm struggling with sin. And some of those sins you talked about, Ed, or I have a child that's really pushing the boundaries. Jesus is not afraid of what you're going through or your child's going through. But if you keep it all to yourself and the only input you get is from outside organizations or people, people that don't hold the faith, what chance do you have of drawing closer to Jesus and overcoming your sin? They'll tell you it's okay. The word of God says, no sin is okay, but let us help you overcome it. So if you're struggling with sin and you keep struggling with the same sin, by the way, there are some sins we will struggle with our whole lives. But you can make progress and you can overcome sin when you take the steps you need to take. My guess is the sin you're struggling with, you've never taken a step deep enough to really deal with it. You haven't told the person you need to tell. You haven't gone to get help from a person that could help you. You haven't brought it into the light in your life. It's hidden. It's safely away because you're so embarrassed by it that you're not willing to deal with it. And I'm telling you, there are people in this church that will not be embarrassed by your sin, but will grieve with you and be sorrowful with you and help you without judgment. I don't know if everybody's like that, but I know there are a lot that are. The final thing is this. This may be your greatest ministry in this church. People are coming in our doors because God is bringing them. They will either be repulsed or drawn based upon how, <laughs> based upon how we receive them. And so when somebody new comes in, if somebody comes in as a couple, a gay couple, if somebody who's just gone through transitioning walks in their doors, are we here to judge them? Or are we here to say, Jesus loves you? Now I'm preaching the word of God. They're gonna understand what the word of God says. That's my responsibility. Your responsibility is to act like Jesus and love whoever he brings in the door.
That's who we should be. It's not, hey, everything's all right. Don't worry about it. Be yourself. Doesn't matter what the Bible says. And it's not, get it right or get out. It's Jesus loves you. We want to love you. Here's the truth. Let's follow it and see where it brings us and helps you get closer to God. I think that's the church we want to be. But it may all come down to your interaction with somebody who walks in our doors. And you will be the one that will determine whether they turn around and leave or whether they come back. That's a heavy responsibility. May this be a place where the truth of God is clear and preached and the mercy and love of God is demonstrated profoundly in our words, in our faces, in our attitudes toward anybody who comes in the door or anybody we meet at work or in our neighborhood or in sports. Because Jesus was a man of what? Grace and truth. Jesus, this is a, a tough line for us. We need to stand for what is true, but to do so with grace and mercy and anybody you bring into our lives, whether in here or into our homes, through our children, through our workplaces, through the sports or school, teach us, God, to be people of grace and truth. I just think, Jesus, your example of that woman caught in adultery, she was caught in bed with another man and brought to you. And you're, you stood up for her. You protected her against the self-righteous. And then when she was alone, you turned to her and said, go and sin no more. The perfect balance of grace and truth. May that be who we become, Jesus. Help us. I want to pray for those that are struggling with their identity or struggling with sin in their life that has just been weighing them down. I pray that they will begin to take the step that you are putting on their heart to find freedom, be it in months or years. May they have the strength to persevere and seek you. 